door, and uh, she was new at it. Um, I'm a I'm a big guy, and there is something you need to know. If you are going to drug me and drag me off for dead, you're going to have to use a lot of drugs uh, because I I just don't numb up really well, really easily. And so the dentists, when they stab me in the face, they have to do it like repeatedly. That's my distaste for dentists. But they they uh, stab me and they fill you know the novocaine repeatedly, repeatedly. But sometimes the if they're new, they they keep thinking surely like this is enough to numb the face of a horse. So I I should use uh, this should be enough, but because it, it often isn't. So anyway, this she was new. She gave me the regular amount, and she put the you know they put the little ice chip on your your mouth. Can you feel this? Yeah. Well, do some more. You know, but I don't want to give you too much. Because, you know, your face will fall off or whatever. So, uh, but then the ice again, nope, nope, nope. And then I, she finally said, listen, if, if, if this doesn't work out, uh, we're going to have to reschedule. And I, I just said, my mouth is, is like, first, I'm not going to come back and get the stabbing repeatedly. And I'm also not excited about this toothache I've got in my mouth about this stupid thing. So I'm like, we're here. I didn't say this to her, but in my mind, I'm like, we're here. So the next time she says, did you feel this? I'm going to say no. So she said, oh, do you feel this? And the answer, yes. Yes, I can feel the cold ice on my thing. But I was like, what, whatever, how bad could it be? It's just a drill in your teeth. So anyway, um, she starts drilling, and I realized at that moment, and no kidding, actually, I started thinking to myself, this is practice for when, when somebody asked me to recant. And uh, they drill my teeth and say, you know, you, 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 you recant. Or don't say you don't believe in the Lord Jesus or we'll keep drilling. It was like a torture. I was sweating profusely, and she kept saying, are you sure you're okay? Are you sure you can't feel this? Oh, no, I'm good. You know, I, 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 you know, sweat coming down everywhere. I was clenching my fists as tightly as I could. Anyway, eventually it, it ended. Uh, I, I left, and now I have a funny story to tell. Um, but I've thought about that since. If, somebody, if you ask me, would you do it again? Well, I mean, I, I prefer more medicine, but yeah, I would. Like, it hurt, it hurt a lot, but it was really necessary. Most surgeries are like that, right? It hurts a lot, but, but you know that it's, it's necessary. You gotta go through the pain to yield the fruit. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you that at the very beginning of, of this sermon because uh, studying the Bible can sometimes hurt, but it's necessary. Just trust me. Here's why I say that. This is out of um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and, and, and it's profitable. So what we're about to study is profitable for what? Well, it's for teaching for reproof, uh, most people don't get up in the morning and are excited about the moments in their days where they're going to be reproved. For correction, when the boss calls you in and issues a correction, you're not excited. And for training, and this work is, word is a word that we use to talk about the training of your children, right? Don't eat that. You better eat your vegetables. Your kids are not celebrating the training. They don't celebrate the reproof or the correction, but you and I both know that it is profitable for them to do so. It's profitable for the dentist to come and to give you a root, a root canal. That the man of God or woman of God may be fully equipped for every 
good work. And so even though uh, sometimes studying the Bible is hard and it, it might hurt a little bit, uh, we know it's necessary. So the next couple of weeks may feel a little bit like root canals, but we're, we're, gonna, we're getting into a pointed section of 1 Corinthians uh, that challenges how we act toward each other as Christians and especially deals with the question of what do we do when one of us is unrepentantly persistent in sin? What, what, what do we do with the member, the brother or sister in Christ who professes faith but who refuses for the gospel to change their life? How do we as a body of Christ interact with that? How should we respond to them? What is our relationship to one another? Are we just friends, affirming acquaintances? What what are we? So the next two weeks will be basically about this as we look at 1 Corinthians 5 and then the beginning of chapter 6. Here's the question I'm asking and trying to answer in the next few minutes. What should a church do about proud, unrepentantly sinful members? What should a church do about proud, unrepentantly sinful uh, members? I've got three things. Here's the first from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. The the first thing we should do about proud, unrepentantly sinful members is we should mourn. We should mourn that this is even a thing that we have to deal with. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported, says the Apostle Paul, that there is sexual immorality among you. This word reported, uh, you need to know. Paul has got this really interesting relationship with the Corinthians. They send each other letters a little bit like pen pals. And then sometimes Paul sends a buddy to go and find out if what they've written in the letter is really true. They send a buddy to them. So he had just sent a buddy, or a couple of them. They had come back, and they, Paul said to them what you would normally say, hey, how are those people in Denver? How are those people in so-and-so? You, maybe you moved from a church a long time ago in Florida, and you say, hey, how are my friends in Florida when you see somebody who comes back? This is what Paul's doing. How are they? And the response is, There's this weird thing going on, Paul. <laughs> what? Well, there's sexual immorality among them, and of a kind that not even uh, the, the pagans tolerate. Well, what is it? Well, a man has his, his father's wife. Which means this is, it's, a, it's a state of affairs. It's not that some guy had some one night stand with somebody or anything like that. This is, it, it, what's going on here is that you have a, 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 a man who is sleeping persistently with his stepmother. And this is something that even the pagans wouldn't affirm. That's a huge thing, this thing right here, a kind not tolerated even among the pagans. Okay, let me tell you what the pagans in Rome thought about sexual uh, endeavors among men. Here, if, if you were uh, uh, living in Rome, here's your attitude. This is the way you would, your attitude would be toward, toward sex. If you were married, uh, ladies, it's a very lopsided affair. 
the only reason that you are allowed to get married or should get married is for procreation, period. Nobody is expecting you to enjoy your marriage. You're not going to a counselor. There are no counselors. Your job is to have babies, period. You are also expected to turn a blind eye to your husband's sexual exploits. He's allowed to do a lot of things. In fact, he is pushed to be a man, right? If, you, if you're a guy and you remain faithful to your wife and wife alone, you're kind of looked down upon in Roman society because you're not, you know, out there sowing your royal oats. You're not a real dude. So uh, husbands were allowed to sleep around so long as their mistress or the whoever they were sleeping with was unmarried. Or if it was a boy, because she was very common, uh, he had to be a certain age, right? A man wanted to sleep with a boy. That's, that's fine. You can go to the brothel. You can go and visit prostitutes. In fact, sometimes religious worship involved visiting prostitutes, uh, dancing girls, all of them fair game. All of them fair game. Really was not much of a thing like rape, like rape, too, by the way. I mean, just all of them fair game, as were older men. Demosthenes, one of the, the, the first century writers, he, he said, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. It's a good summary. So from a Christian point of view, the pagans, the Roman society, had a really loose view of sexual activity. Super loose. And this, says Paul, isn't even something they would do. Here's the problem. It's not like this is happening in the church and the and the church itself is like, well, that's awful, terrible. We need to take care of this problem. And you are arrogant. You should come to my church. It's awesome. You know why? We got a dude who's sleeping with his stepmom. Praise God. Why would anybody ever say that? All right, let me explain to you why somebody would say that. Um, in Greek society, so Greco-Roman, Greek and Roman society in those days, uh, people largely believed in what's called dualism, which means that there's an immaterial world and there's a material world. The material world is not important at all. Your body doesn't matter. The chair doesn't matter. Your car doesn't, nothing material matters. Immaterial is all that matters. Your spirit, your soul, all that matters. So if your body doesn't matter at all and your spirit is the only thing that matters, all the time that you spend to focus on your spirit is time well spent, but time that you focus on your body is, nah, it's just kind of necessary. The body just sort of needs stuff. It needs food, it needs sleep, it needs to go to the bathroom occasionally. So you serve the body. You can go one of two ways this way, okay? You, you can say, well, if the body doesn't matter at all, then I'm not gonna give the body anything, right? We call that asceticism. It's like monkish. You just go off in the desert and you're like, I like steak, but I'm never eating it again because who cares? The body doesn't get what it wants. So you can become a monk, an ascetic. Or you can become a hedonist. You can basically become someone who says, well, if what the body wants, it doesn't matter. Um, I'm just gonna give it whatever it needs. So I give it as much food as, as, I, 
as it wants. And if it tastes good, I'll get more. I, I, I will give it uh, all the massages. I will give it all of the sleep. I will give it all of the sex. Because it doesn't matter. It's just the body. The real me is inside. So they believed this. What the Corinthians had done had taken this worldview from the wider society and said the body is of no effect. Christians didn't believe that. They had brought this from their society and they had dropped it in the church now and they had married it to Christian thinking, which said, oh, by the way, we're gonna go to heaven one day. And the Greeks said, or the, these Corinthians said, yeah, heaven's immaterial. So we're almost in heaven. We're such a mature church. We're almost in heaven. Therefore, what we do here and now with our bodies, eh. Chapter six, they'll say food is for the stomach and stomach for food. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So they were having sex and celebrating it because it was a sign to them, look, this guy's not even, he doesn't give any care to his body at all. He's almost an angel, guys. Woo, praise Jesus, we're almost there. The sign of it is that this guy's sleeping with his stepmother. And you can just hear Paul, if he had hair. Because here's what they're doing. They were mushing together Greek beliefs with the word of God. And the result was an abomination. Uh, one of my best friends in the world is one of the guys who works here at the church. His name's Kyle Meeker. We've known each other for years since seminary. Kyle it eats ridiculous things. If you go out, you know that place Mod Pizza where you build your own pizza? Yeah, they have different ones, Blaze Pizza. Things like that. So if you go there with Kyle, uh, you'll, you'll be getting your pizza, which I'm assuming because most of you are Christians, you'll get a normal pizza, right? You'll get the sauce and you'll put the cheese on it and stuff. And you'll get some, you know, pepperoni and things like that. Normal, like mature Christian things. And so they'll, they'll carry that through. And then Kyle will come after you and he'll say, well, I would like to have a zucchini and broccoli on a pizza. Come on, that's ridiculous, right? It's, and here's why it's ridiculous. Uh, pizzas are magnificent. The idea of a pizza is the greatest thing there is. I mean, honest people ask me, what's your favorite food? Pizza. Any pizza? Yeah. As long as you don't make an abomination. You know how you make it an abomination? You take broccoli and you put it on there, right? You, you, you take sardines or whatever. You, you, you take all sorts of odd, bizarre things and you shove it on there. See, pizza is fantastic, it's magnificent, it's great, it's pure, and then this is wicked, and you smush it together, and it's an abomination. Yes, exactly, Corinthians. Exactly, broccoli pizza is what they had, and Paul's livid with them. He's livid with them. In James chapter 4, there's this interesting little passage where James says, uh, you adulterous people. Notice the language he uses. He's basically trying to compare. All right, anybody who does what he's about to describe here is somebody who is acting in an adulterous way toward God. So God and me, we have this marriage relationship, and, and I am cheating on him if I do what's described here. Uh, you adulterous people, do you not know that, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Don't put broccoli on your pizza. 
whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Seriously, what he's saying is don't take the wider culture and all its values that run dead against the grain of Christian teaching, then take Christian teaching and squish them together and form some abomination and think somehow that you're being faithful to God. Well, you don't do that. Okay. Let me give you a few examples. Um, Here's an example of sexual syncretism in the more modern times. Kenda Creasy Dean, in an excellent little book called Almost Christian, which describes the state of youth, youth ministry in particular, in our modern world. And uh, it's not great, largely because uh, young people are being taught what we want them to learn, which is that God's great and you're great and everything's going to be great and here's some pizza. Not broccoli. Candy Creasy Dean in Almost Christian. In April 2005, she writes, when the youth center at the Lutheran church in Katzbang, Germany, needed a new coat of paint. It's like a painter church. The church's teenagers planned a fundraiser. They decided to make a calendar depicting modern-day biblical scenes that they could sell to the local community, and they would pose as models themselves. Nude. The Katzbang youth calendar fundraiser was neither hastily conceived nor covertly executed. The youth director, church member, husband, father, and amateur photographer wanted to do things right, so he received approval from the church board. He collected permission slips from parents of all youth under 18 and asked the pastor for suitable Bible stories for the project. Quote, It's just wonderful when teenagers commit themselves with their hair and their skin to the Bible, Pastor Gernt Grasser told the BBC. The youth carefully staged 12 scenes, uh, Eve holding an apple, King David secretly watching a woman bathing, Salome dancing in body paint, and a topless Delilah trimming Samson's locks. The teenagers planned to unveil their photographs at an exhibition in the church hall on the second Sunday in Advent. Merry Christmas. All right, fearful that no one would attend. (laughs) It's not a fear he should have had. Fearful no one would attend. Pastor Grasser notified two local church news outlets and the avalanche began. Reuters picked up the story, beaming it all around the world with the church website. Three days and six million hits later, the youth had sold all 5,000 calendars and the church's internet server had crashed. The overwhelmed youth leader removed the order from the website, but orders poured in anyway from all over the world. The BBC, Russian news services, and radio stations from as far away as Colombia contacted the pastor. Television news stations beamed the story across Europe, and within two weeks, the youth of Katzwang's Lutheran church earned more than 40,000 euros. It's a lot of paint. Praise God. Yeah. Now, most of us in the room are like, no, that's, that's really weird. That doesn't really a- a- apply to us. Don't they read their Bible? Don't these people read their Bible? They've taken like sexual mores from the wider society and they've taken the teachings of the Bible and they squished them together and it's an abomination. They should be reading their Bible more. Yeah, but we can say that until we realize that in 2011, Relevant Magazine Christian 
Youth Magazine uh, discovered that 80% of self-proclaimed Christians have sex before marriage in comparison to 88% of non-Christians. 80%. That's a lot. When asked why, eh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Church needs to get, you guys need to get off this whole like purity thing. Give me a break. Okay, um, how about a, a little bit of nationalist, nationalist syncretism? Here's, here's one for Christian churches in the United States especially. Um, there is this trend among Christian churches and Christians in general to see the Christian church as equivalent uh, as equivalent to the United States in terms of its interests. So whatever the United States does that it serves the interests of the U.S., that's good for the church. And so we go to war. And it doesn't matter that we're bombing people in another land who are Christian brothers and sisters. We say, yes, but it serves the purposes of the United States. And so therefore Christian, right? Because the state and the, and, and the church Basically the same thing. I was walking through a mall a little while ago in, uh, not here, Washington State, and it, this is what I saw. This is a t-shirt. Do you see that? It's Jesus saves, but the USA is in the middle because we're one nation under God, yeah? Jesus saves. It's good stuff. We celebrate presidents at times and our political leanings at times more than we celebrate the values of the kingdom, ah, it doesn't matter. As long as we have good economies and as long as our, you know, our, our, we're protected in the United States, we're fine. But yeah, but is that a Christian notion? Shouldn't we care a lot about the Christian church and the development of the gospel and the, or sorry, the movement of the gospel and the growth of the kingdom around the world? But what we've done is we've taken America or Canada or Colombia or whatever it is, France, and we've said, France, our interests and the word of God and, and what you've got is an abomination. Uh, one more, um, we see financial syncretism all over the place in the church. You know how? Hey, you know what? God wants you rich, guys. You know that? Did you know that? He wants you rich and happy and healthy. And if you're not rich, happy, and healthy, something's fundamentally wrong. Did you know Jesus was rich? I know people have told you that he's not rich, but he was really rich. He just hid the money really well. So should you. That's his, that's his will for his people is prosperity. Do you have prosperity? If you don't have prosperity, there's something wrong with you. It's the promise of the Bible, right? The promise of the Bible. So what, what have we done here? We've taken, the, we've taken the values of consumerism and money and the value that we have and comfort and all those things, and then we've married it to certain biblical passages, uh, made them say things that they don't say, pfft, squish it together, and it's an, an abomination. So yeah, we, I think we understand a little bit of what the Corinthians are dealing with here. Friendship with the world is enmity toward God. And they were being friendly with the world. So what should we do uh, about proud, unrepentantly sinful members? Well, first, we should mourn and not be arrogant. We, sh we should mourn that these things happen. We have our priorities straight. But secondly, we should discipline those members for the sake of both the sinner and the saints. 
We should discipline for the sake of the sinner and the saints. Look at verse two, the second half of it. Let him who has done this, let this guy who is sleeping with his mother, stepmother, let him be removed from among you. Like, that's what you guys should have done. You shouldn't have celebrated him. You should, you should have removed him. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. By the way, this is, this is Paul speaking from his apostolic authority. So please don't go out of the church tonight and start thinking to yourself, oh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do this to everybody. You know, like I know a guy over in, in Memphis who's sinning against his church, and so I'm gonna pronounce judgment from afar. This is not what this is. Paul has the authority to do this as an apostle. But listen to how it's supposed to go down. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. So when you guys gather together in the name of Lord Jesus, church service, and I'm with you, not physically, but in spirit, and I've already passed judgment, I want you to carry this out now, not by my power, but by the power of Jesus Christ. I actually, this is probably a reference to another passage of scripture that is really interesting that people quote frequently and don't really, I think, get it right. Here's Matthew chapter 18. is a passage about where Jesus tells you, what should you do with a sinning, with somebody who sins against you, okay? What's the faithful way as a Christian to handle someone who's sinning against you? Well, if your brother sins against you, uh, you go, go and tell him his fault. Just between you and him alone. Preferably not with the prayer group that you just shared it with either. If he listens to you, uh, you've gained him. But if he doesn't listen on the odd occasion, uh, I want you to take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We don't want people just to, like saying, I, this happened, and you did it, and nobody else knows, but you did it. So, okay, we're, we're, we need to have other people recognize that this is a character trait in that particular person or somebody who witnessed this happening or whatever. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or one other, so now you got two or three people together, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as, as a Gentile and a tax collector. That doesn't mean that you hate him. That means that you kick him out of the church. Tax collectors and Gentiles were people who were not allowed to be involved in the, in the community of faith in Israel. Truly, I say to you, Jesus speaking, whatever you bind on earth regarding this, so if the church makes a decision regarding this stuff, Regarding this person, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And the decision you make over this, guys, when you gather together as the church, the decision you make is what I think, too, says Jesus. I know that because of what he says next. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, remember, you should take somebody else with you. So when you have that other witness, when it comes to church discipline, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two 
or three are gathered. Why are they gathered? In context, why are they gathered? Discipline. When the two or three are gathered in discipline, in my name, there I am among them. So do not, in other words, says Jesus, claim that I'm on your team if the church with its two or three witnesses or one or two when the two or three gather, don't claim that I'm on your side if they've pronounced judgment. So we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter five. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. In other words, what he just said. Jesus is gonna be there too because he is endorsing the church's viewpoint at this moment. He's not somewhere else partnering together with the unrepentant sinner saying, hey, it's okay, that church is really mean. The power of the Lord Jesus, you are, oh, ready for this? Jeez. You are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So you're supposed to kick him out, but the kicking him out is intended for his restoration. Yeah, yeah, you're supposed to kick him out of the church, probably what it means to deliver him over to Satan, to Satan's realm outside the church. You kick him out of the church, bar him from relationships so that while he's out of the church, he gets an indication of where his future is probably headed, apart from the people of God, apart from the endorsement of Jesus. And he says to himself, Yikes, I don't know if I want this to be a forever thing, right? Because like if this is a forever thing, it means that I'm not actually a Christian. Right, you want his spirit to be saved in the day of the Lord. Do you see his point? Maybe an illustration is helpful. You have this kid on your baseball team, he's a really rotten animal. He's really, I mean, he might play really well, but he's got a stinking attitude, Right? And after a while, you're like, you're such a good player. You're such a capable kid, but your attitude's so bad. I'm gonna put you on the bench. Now, if you're a good coach and he's a really good player, the reason you're putting him on the bench is not punitive. You're not trying to say, you sit on the bench there so that I can shake my fist at you and say, you're so stupid, how dare you, and tear you down with no thought to your future. If you're a good coach, you sit him on the bench so that by being separated from what's happening on the field, he thinks to himself, I don't like this. I don't like being separated from what's going on in the field. That's why I come and play baseball is to actually play. And he comes to you later and says, you know, I, 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 I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have such a snotty attitude. I'm willing to move forward. Yes, right, that, that's what Paul's describing here. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so your spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So do you see that the goal is for him. Church discipline exists for the sinner. Their benefit and for the benefit of the saints. Note the next little part. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6. Uh, your boasting is not good. It's an understatement. When you guys celebrate this guy and what he's doing and his sin, it's, it's not good. Uh, don't you know that, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You guys, 
in, during COVID, everyone seemed to want to give everyone else sourdough starter. Did you remember this? There's like a billion sourdough loaves been made during COVID. The thing about sourdough bread, I'm told, is that you need to have the little sourdough starter so that it's, 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 it's from an old batch of dough. You put it in a little, a little bit, and then you add it to the new batch of dough, and then that batch of dough, you take a little bit so you can start it with somebody else, right? But you need to have this starter to get going. So it's old, it's old dough being added to a new lump. Now, there's a problem with the old dough, <laughs> and it could make you sick, Okay? Ironically, maybe sicker than, than, than many diseases, even COVID. So I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on there uh, when it comes to, to the adding of it and the health and re- related to it. It's part of, probably one of the reasons why God said, I want you guys to eat unleavened bread in Israel because he didn't want that bacteria or those infections to move across. But that's a possibility, right? The old, old stuff that's been sitting around for a while when added to the new one will bleed through the whole thing and make, the, make it rise or also bleed through it and make you die when you eat it. This is the picture he's working with. This is Paul's sourdough bread moment. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So, so, so you need to cleanse out the old leaven. That sourdough starter, get rid of it. That you may be a, a new lump as you really are. really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, he has been sacrificed. So you're new in Christ. You're new in Christ. You have a different way of seeing the world. You have different values. They're different from the ways of the world. Why would you then take a person who's addicted to the ways of the world, shove him in your church so that he can bleed through everything and spread his infection? Let us therefore celebrate the festival, but not not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the new leaven of a new unleavened bread of sincerity or truth. You guys are already pure, so live as pure people and get rid of this particular guy. We not only discipline the unrepentant member for their sake, but for our sake, because sinfulness spreads. When it is justified by a church, The church sets up an environment for that sin and others to just go unchecked. And after a while, it just bleeds through everything and everyone gets sick. Since we talked a minute ago about my my toothache, let's talk now about the other end of my body, my foot. Um, It was only a few years ago, actually, that I, my foot blew up like a balloon. I don't know why. And uh, I went to my friend who's a doctor, Trent is his name, and I sat down, and he like had one look at it, and he pulled out a black marker, and he's talking to me, so how are things, your kids doing well, yeah, and he's drawing, drawing around my leg, yeah, they're great, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, this hurts a little bit, yeah, it hurts like crazy, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't need to scare you, but this is the kind of thing that before antibiotics would kill you. So I'm going to need you to go to the hospital right now. This is what we call cellulitis, right? And for a fat guy, that's the worst thing you want, right? The cellulitis. Ouch. Not even a laugh. Um, damn. So, so, so I, I get this drawing around my, around my leg, 
And I go to the hospital, and I'm talking to the nurse there, and, and she's like, oh, my goodness, good thing you're in here. This is really bad. And I said, why do you draw the line around my leg? And she said, well, he's trying to mark to see whether, like, if it's spreading any further. And if it spreads any further, we've got to be more aggressive with it in terms of the antibiotics. But we've got to, like, feed the antibiotics right into your body, like we just directly into you. Ah, <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good picture of what Paul's trying to get at here is that the sinful member is the cellulitis in the body, and if it goes unchecked, it will just spread everywhere. And so, yes, do we do, we do church discipline for the sake of the sinner? Absolutely, for their restoration, so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. But we also do it for the sake of the church, so that the entire church knows, look, this kind of thing is not tolerated here. God himself does not like this. Which is why in the beginning of the book of Acts, you get this guy Ananias and Sapphira who walk forward and lie to the apostles about the price of a piece of land they sold. So that everyone in the round can think that they're more generous than they actually are. And Peter, who's speaking to them, says immediately when they report the amount of money they sold the property for, he says, is that really the amount? And Ananias says, yes, look at my generosity. And Peter says, we'll look at your feet dead on the floor. Boom. Wife comes in a little later, same thing. Boom. And the whole church is freaking out. Why are they freaking out? The people around the church are freaking out. You know why they're freaking out? Because they've seen what God expects of his people. That's what church discipline does. It shows what God expects of his people. And remember, a pure church is an effective church. A pure church is an effective So what do we do with somebody who is uh, unrepentantly sinful, a member? Well, we, we mourn about it, and then we, we discipline for the sake of the sinner and the saints. And then, and then finally, uh, we got to be careful with all this, because we need to act toward the right people the right way. Here, here's what I mean by that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 now. It said, I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But I don't want you guys to misunderstand what I meant by that, says Paul. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. So the people who aren't, they don't have faith in Christ, the people you mingle with all around who are sexually immoral, those are not the people I'm talking about. I'm not saying to you that you should not associate with them. Or the greedy and swindlers or, or idolaters. Since then, look, you'd need to go out of the world, and you and I both know that Christians, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We're not supposed to be out of the world. So you're gonna have to mix and associate with people who are sexually immoral, greedy, blah, 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 who aren't Christians. That's normal. But now I'm writing to you to clarify, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So in other words, if they... If they profess faith in Christ and say, I'm a Christian, but they still do the thing, the sexually immoral thing, and they persist in it unrepentantly, that's who we're talking about. Do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty 
of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So uh, let's put a little bit of this together. What does that mean? So we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to uh, associate, that's the language. And he says at the end, well, don't even eat with such a one. Is that, what does that refer to? Well, at the very least, it refers to the communion, right, that the early church gathered for a meal, refers to the communion, but it also likely refers to the meal, at least in that culture, because to have a meal with someone is, is to show a welcome and an invitation and acceptance and joy even in who they are. Have a meal with somebody who's outside the church, who's, a, who's an unrepentant sinner, but do not have one with someone who's inside, says Paul. Because Jesus, remember when he got, a, he got accused of, you know, spending time with tax collectors and sinners? He was eating with them. Well, that shows an invite. That shows a welcome. So Paul's like, show that welcome to the people outside, the tax collectors and sinners, but do not show it to the brother who still persists in sexual sin and idolatry and greed. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? What's the answer? What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Um, nothing. Oh, Christians, please hear that. Yes, I mean, aren't we known for our judgment of the outsiders? And Paul's like, why are you doing that? I don't understand. What's the deal? What do you expect them apart from the Spirit's work in their lives to produce some spiritual fruit? I will only hang out with you if you pretend to be a Christian. No. Is it not those inside the church whom we are to, you are to judge? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. Why are you so judgmental? Because you're my brother and sister. That's why. Because you profess faith in Christ, and I'm worried about your eternal salvation. And by running directly against what God has called you to, you are demonstrating a kind of life that will lead to rejection, not welcomed by God. So please, please, for the sake of everything, I'm concerned for you, but I'm also concerned for the church. Because the way you're living, if it goes unchecked, we're done. What's the point in even gathering anyway then? Is it not those inside whom you are to judge? So here's the point. The way the church handles a sinful unbeliever is different than how the church handles a sinful believer. We get it backwards. Amen? We get it backwards. We chastise the pagan, the outside the church, Insist that they live our way so that we can spend time with them and bring them to Christ who will transform their minds to help them live our way. We chastise them before they're Christians, but with the friends that we have whose lives are being deliberately lived against the will of God, who claim to be Christians, we're like, yeah, they're okay. Paul's like, man, you can flip that around, man. We should rather mourn. Treat the right people the right way. So to put, you know, a point on it, uh, I was preaching a number of years ago on, on uh, 
my denomination that I used to be in was kind of split down the middle on the whole issue of homosexual sin, homosexual acts, and uh, I was asked to speak on it, and so I stood in front. This is the text I, I used, and I said, look, there seems to be this big issue that everybody's got about, well, how should we de deal with the homosexual in our community? Um, like you deal with every single other non-believer in your community, right? Associate with them. Uh, hang out with them. Have them to dinner. We're not supposed to be out of the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. So don't be of what they're doing, but man, be in it. You should have lots of friends who don't do what God wants them to do. Yes, amen. That's why we've been left in the world. But, I said in my sermon, in our churches, when someone confesses faith in Christ, and they baptize before all of us to say, look, I want to commit myself to following. We have a responsibility as brothers and sisters to hold them to account. Because I want them holding me to account. Look, let me finish all of this with a passage that um, has been on my mind a lot, actually, as I've been studying this this last week. Um, it's out of Hebrews chapter 3. It, it, here's how it goes. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, it's the writer of Hebrews talking, of course, take note of that person. Oh, this is not the right text and I have nothing to do with them. Uh, here's the Hebrews one. Uh, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to, to fall away from, from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For, listen closely, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You, look, unless, unless you finish the race, you're not going to get the prize. You've come to share in Christ if you hold on your original confidence firm to the end. What has God given you in your life to, to help you? Well, the people who will um, exhort you, Right? The people who, who, who will, who, who will uh, exhort you every day. The, the Christian brothers and sisters around you, that, that's who God's given you to continue down the path. When they exhort you, you might get angry. I used to be a, a lifeguard, and there was a guy, I only saved one person ever. He was a guy who swam into the water, and he, he was drunk, and he started, I could see only his feet. He was kicking down. Because drunk people that get their equilibrium all messed up, and when they go swimming, sometimes they think the bottom's the top and the top is the bottom. So he's out there kicking his feet, going straight down. So I go out in the water, and I'm like, I'm saving you, right? So I, I get near him, and I grab him, and he's punching me while I'm trying to turn him around. I have to go back up for breath, come back down, go back up for breath. And they teach you as a lifeguard that you can pinch different parts of people's bodies right behind here, right, to get them to submit to you. So I'm down under the water, pinching him there, doesn't do anything, right? He's like the Incredible Hulk, this guy, and he's going straight to the bottom. He hasn't taken a breath in a long time, and he's pushing me away. How dare you? How dare you? What do you mean, how dare me? 
I'm here to save your life. Brothers and sisters, please, please hear me. My job as a pastor is basically a lifeguard. My job is to stand in front and, and, and tell you, look, these are hard things to hear. It's difficult to poke your nose into the situation of a brother or sister who is swimming to the bottom. But you know, you know that if you don't, they'll die. For you have come to share in Christ if you hold firm your confidence to the very end. So look, maybe something that I've said here in the last few minutes has poked you. Maybe you think to yourself, yeah, I'm that person. It's just that nobody knows about it. Can I just plead with you to turn around? That's me pinching you. It's the spirit, I hope, making you aware. Turn around. There's still time. It's not too late. Turn around. Sin is deceitful. Some don't want to hear it, but the act of our intervention is an act of love. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for uh, your kindness to us and ultimately hard passages of Scripture that push us in our minds and hearts toward a direction that uh, we need to go. And I pray, Father, that you would use uh, these words, however insufficient that they are, that your spirit would be pleased to use words like these to uh, draw your people back to yourself and ultimately, Father, correct our ways. Help us to see uh, our neighbors as people who need to be reached with the gospel and help us to see our brothers and sisters as people who need to be kept in the gospel. Lead us in your way, we pray. In Jesus' name.